Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer lives and careers on everything, countries, companies, couples, and careers. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Herminia Ibarra, professor at London Business School and author of the seminal book, Working Identity, that's just been republished. This is a favorite book of many career changers I know because it offers such an action-oriented approach to getting out there to make change happen. We explore why change is so hard for so many. Why do we get invested in our past selves and find it so hard to imagine our future selves? And why midlife transitions are so under-institutionalized? If you want to understand what that means, listen up. Welcome, Herminia Ibarra, to Four Quarter Lives. Really, really delighted to have you here. I was so pleased to be here, Aviva, after yeah. all these years. <laughs> you and I go back a go long back a time. Long ways. Yeah. A, few, a few too many decades to count, but we hung around INSEAD for a long time in parallel. And our interests, I'm, I'm a, one of your biggest fans and passionate followers. I feel like I echo you half the time, but that's okay. I'm going to get a whole nother hour of quotable quotes. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking career transitions. You've done all kinds of work on leadership and what it takes and how to step up. But here, we're going to focus more on one of your really seminal books that's marked almost everybody I know. They all refer to this book, Working Identity, that you've just actually republished with an updated entry. Maybe to start, why is it so relevant now? And it seems even more so than when you first published it. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, for all the reasons that people are thinking about career transition more often, it's more relevant now because more people are doing it, either because they want to or because they're forced to, because we are also seeing a lot of disruption in the big organizations that have been traditional employers. And so people have to find alternative pathways. We know, you know, today the hype is about generative AI, you know, before it was something else. But we know all of these things mean that the possibility set is going to be shifting. They also open up a lot of possibilities for people. You know, what we're doing right now is made possible. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, of course, and you know, this is your passion nowadays, we're living longer. And so, you know, whereas people might have wanted to hang on a little bit longer, that stretch is looking to be a bit too vast for just hanging on. And so people are starting to invest more in these later phases. And they, you know, this has been, you know, I started studying careers now almost 35 years ago. And the trend's been on that we want more and more out of our work. We, we love it. We value it. When we hate it, we hate it. We want flexibility. We want meaning. We want purpose. We want passion. We want it all. Everything. And yeah. everything. Regular jobs provide that less and less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a gap here somewhere. So there's no, no wonder people, no wonder people want to change. So yeah, yeah we're seeing since working identity, we're just seeing a lot more career change. I think more involuntary. You know, I, I look every once in a while at these websites that track mass layoffs. It's, it's, yeah. it's 
crazy. And there's more options now. The paths are much more do-it-yourself. So maybe just to set the stage, I remember at the time when I first read this, and it didn't impact me directly, but now that I've been in a career transition about for the last five years, one of the key messages I originally took from the book was that career transitions, especially in midlife, just take so much longer than people think. And I still have people coming to me saying, you know, I'd like to get this all sorted and know what I'm doing by summer. And it's like you kind of nod your head and you say, yep, okay, (laughs) settle in, fasten your seatbelts. Why does it take so much longer than anybody thinks? And how do we adjust people's expectations to a more realistic pacing? Yeah, it does. First of all, it does. That is the bad news of all of this. It takes much longer than you think, even when you think you've got it all figured out and you know what you want to do, which is rare. I think part of it is we don't give the bad news often enough. You know, I even had a little chat with my editor when I was revising Working Identity and writing the new preface. And, you know, she kind of wanted me to play down the how long it takes because people don't (laughs) want to hear that. That's a pessimistic message. They want to hear, here you go, all these possibilities. Just just do it. And it'll miraculously happen in three months. Yeah. I always say, you know, here, let's start with the bad news. It's going to take longer than you think. And it's going to be a messy, nonlinear process. It's going to drive you crazy. Let's just, let's, let's just get started with that. And the reason why it takes so long is that in most cases, you have one or two of two situations. One is, and this is the most common, you know what you don't want, but you don't know what you want instead. You haven't figured it out. And so part of the search process is exploration, finding ideas, finding possibilities. You have to fine tune yeah. them. You have to play with them. In the other case, people know what they want. But it isn't possible. It isn't available. There isn't a job for them like that, with that pay or at that level of responsibility or what have you. And then they're going to have to back down from it. What are some adjacencies? What are other possibilities? And we get back into exploratory mode. So that's why it takes so long. It also takes long because if you are going the route of employers rather than the kind of the do-it-yourself portfolio or auto-entrepreneurship or what have you, Companies are just taking much longer to vet and interview people. These are extended processes that easily last into six months. Once you get there and getting there takes a while. It is a little bit ironic that you, of all people, have been writing about career transitions when, frankly, you've been a professor like all your working life. Now, you've changed institutions a number of times, but share a bit of your background and how you got first interested in this theme? And is it convincing you to stay stable <laughs> when you watch everybody else paddling desperately? To it is transition? funny. And I, it, and I get teased a lot. By that. <laughs> but instead of changing careers, you know, I'm lucky I'm an academic, you can do so much as an academic. So when I have a midlife crisis, and I've had several, I just change <laughs> countries. <laughs> but uh, I've, know, d- I've done that. I've done that. Yeah. too. <laughs> I was always academically inclined. And my hunch from my teenage years ended up being a good one. I did a PhD. And out of the PhD, I went straight to Harvard Business School, where I had my first academic job as a professor. And I've loved it ever since. And I've stayed in it. At some point, I shifted. I moved to INSEAD after 13 years at Harvard. And I stayed there a long while until I joined the London Business School. And those are, you know, those are significant shifts at the same time. They're not as monumental as the ones that I study because academia is such a global 
thing. Even if you're shifting institutions, you're not necessarily shifting networks. And we have so much leeway to write and research and teach on whatever happens to be intriguing us at the moment. So I feel very lucky that way. Can you share, just because those are interesting transitions and you've worked for some of the biggest institutions in the world, what was the difference? What was the difference like in you at those different career phases? Because I mean, I imagine that starting at HBS as the young woman you were was not an easy time or ride, but maybe not. No, 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 it wasn't. And I've gotten a lot of copy out of that, in fact. (laughs) My my travails, my uh, challenges (laughs) there are the main story of my TED Talk about authenticity. So I definitely struggled to find myself and find my voice there. And as we always say, when it was hard, I learned so much. (laughs) (laughs) And it was very good training for a lot of things. And it's a fantastic place. I left and I moved to INSEAD because it wasn't about the work. It was about the life. I didn't like Boston. I couldn't see myself be there long term. And it's I cold. knew the more really time cold. passed. It's not just cold. It's, it's a, a whole lot of things. <laughs> you know, I knew that if I kept going, I'd just stay there. And for me, it felt like something was missing. And so actually, you know, the funny thing is I... I was in Paris visiting INSEAD on sabbatical and I was working on this book and it was only a couple of years later that I realized I followed exactly the method that I described for changing careers (laughs) myself in that I tried an experiment. I went on a sabbatical somewhere else. I didn't burn my bridges, which is what I always recommend if you can stay where you are, muck around, experiment, play, try things out. but. You don't know what you don't know. And I was able to prolong that a bit because a year definitely wasn't enough to be able to make up my mind. But part of what that does is it starts to give you new networks. It separates you from the old thing. So it has less of a hold on you. And then over time, you start thinking about it more concretely. But I felt like that was the life that I wanted to have and not much more than the one that I did. And so I stayed. It was still very difficult. And it was... Definitely a challenge for my mother to find out that her, you know, my mother, the Cuban immigrant, her (laughs) daughter is leaving a full professor job at Harvard voluntarily. (laughs) What is wrong with you? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the big difference was. INSEAD was uh, younger then, as, as, as we all, and, and it, so it was, more, it was more entrepreneurial. You know, Harvard is so um, established. Yeah. There's a level of professionalism and, and history and way of doing things and people who will tell you how to do it because they've come before, whereas at INSEAD, it was kind of new territory. Oh, you want to teach a course on that, go ahead. You know, if it doesn't work, we won't let you keep doing it, but try it out for sure. Don't worry, you know, really anything. And, and, you know, that was mid-career for me. It was really enjoyable to just be able to muck around, create courses, um, you know, do more entrepreneurial things. And so I, I got a big, I got a big kick out of that. And then LBS, London? Did you get tired of Paris? No, no, no. I'll never tire of Paris. (laughs) That was much more for family reasons. It it just made sense in lots of ways. And, you know, I never burned my bridges. So 
And it's fascinating. I dig a little bit because that is actually a fairly archetypal journey, right? You, A lot of people, especially the kind of people we're hanging out with in all these business schools, have this first phase that is super status, admired, pinnacle, and then yearn for a little bit more life, a little bit more balance, a little bit more flair or something or entrepreneurial freedoms. And then eventually, you know, adjust and make new choices for a new phase of life and often the family issues that come haunting us again back in later life. So, okay, so you haven't, you know, totally under, you know, changed every bit of your career, but you're pretty well on the same journey as the people you're writing about. We are all. We are all. So why are these changes so hard and often what I'm really struck by is so emotional like people don't admit I think how emotional they are especially most men I think kind of tamp down but if you dig a little bit or you know them they're hugely emotional and there is so much fear and anxiety and angst also you know anticipation it's you know the the shiny sparkle of something new and and unknown but there's a lot of fear and anxiety and there's two big reasons one is that what we do is who we are it is our one of our strongest bases of identity because if you think about it just in terms of time you spend every day on it. It's it's what you do. Yeah. It's the company you keep. It's the story you tell. I worked hard. I got this degree. I got that job. You know, it just, it, changing disrupts everything. It's it's not just, it disrupts everything. And so the, that sense of loss, even when you want to, it is that you're giving up something you struggled so much for and that shapes your existence. And then, of course, there's just so much uncertainty about what you're trading it in for. You know, the definition of transition is you're moving away from something while moving towards something that's still undefined. You don't know what it is yet. And, yeah. and so you get into this kind of limbo. Who am I? All those big questions open up. You feel unsure, you know, and especially in later career, you're supposed to have it all together. You're supposed to know what you want and what you're about and not have these doubts and so on. But the minute you have this kind of suspension of a core aspect of who you are, all the doubts come rushing in and it's, it's good. We can get into that. There's, there's an aspect that's very productive about it, but it's very, very scary. The thing that feeds it and makes it scarier is, is this idea that the older we get, the more under institutionalized career changes. And that's a big academic word to say that is, you know, you're doing it yourself. There's not yeah. a, there's not a well-worn groove to fit into. It's not like becoming partner in a big law firm. You go to law school and then you get this job and then you do this and then you, you're doing it with other people. There's a time frame. You know how long it takes. You could fail, but you know what's involved. From mid-career and beyond, first of all, you don't know how long it's going to take. You're not doing it with other people. You're not in a cohort. You don't necessarily have somebody who is the role model of how to do it. What steps you need to take? Well, it, it all depends. You know, say you're an investment banker and you want to be a wine entrepreneur. What are the steps? Well, there could be 
endless sequences of steps that lead you from A to Z and yeah. somebody else making the same shift will have taken different steps. And, yeah. and so there's just, there's many more unknowns. It's a more complex process to manage and make decisions about. There's less feedback involved. It's harder to benchmark yourself. So all of those things, institutions are the things that kind of structure what are the norms, what are the expectations, what are the rules? And we don't have that. It's it's good because you it's more freeing. You can be more self-authoring, but you got to really struggle your way through it on your own. And a lot of it is, especially initially, I think, so intrinsically driven. It's invisible to everybody around you. Why in the world would you want to leave like your mother <laughs> with your, your position at heart? Why would you want to leave? And when everybody looks at you like you're out of your mind very hard to stay convinced that you might want to wander into the dark forest. That was another one of the light bulbs in working identity. And I still see it today. If you are lucky enough to be in a good job and wanting to get out of it, because sometimes we're booted out and that's why we're changing. But if you're lucky enough, everybody around you, friends and family and colleagues will think you're out of your mind. And, and you you should just be kind of kind of tied to the mass so you don't do something that's going to hurt you because why would you? Yeah, because they're probably pretty invested in whatever you were. They're invested. They're 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 yeah. are invested in what you were doing. Yeah. And maybe you doing it is a little scary. What could that imply for them? Are they going to have to think about it too? Yeah, <laughs> it's like absolutely. When, when a couple is getting divorced, nobody wants to talk yes. to them for fear of contamination. <laughs> there's there's a bit of that here. Absolutely. So does preparation and normalization help? Is that making it easier? Do you find that once people have read your book, they have an easier time? Yes and no. You know, it kind of depends. The big message of my book is act your way into a new career, into your new self. You can't reflect. So this preparation is all very hypothetical until you start doing things. You know, sometimes you have to, sometimes it, it kind of, you know, it gives you a way to fill up time. You feel like you're doing, but you're not really until you start doing something a bit more actively. But I, I think where it helps is seeing examples of people. Oh, this is interesting. Or this is somebody who's a bit like me. And that's the normalization. I think today we see many, many more examples and more role models, certainly, yeah. you know, yeah. 20 years ago maybe still not enough but but that helps because when you see somebody else who's done it you think okay you know this could work out for me yeah absolutely and the media is getting much better at portraying oh, yeah. some of these pictures so you can i love this quote so maybe one day we will be better able to avoid what you call the tumult and turmoil of straying from the linear path a time of confusion loss, insecurity, and struggle. <laughs> so yes, that's what we want to help people get through. So you've just published a revised edition of Working Identity, which I really recommend because it's got some interesting updates. And there's still these two simple ideas at its heart that I wanted to dig into. And the first one I love is this idea that working identity is not a hidden treasure waiting to be discovered. What do you mean by that? In the world of career development and career decision, there has always been this kind of great myth, the myth of the true self. You've got to find yourself, know who you are, 
And then that's it. All you have to do is implement. All you have to do is find that inner essence that really defines you. That is who you are. And it's a myth. It's BS. That doesn't exist. We are possibilities and maybe not endless possibilities, but many different possibilities for who we might become in the future. And in fact, if you look at how we evolve, we do end up changing much more than we ever kind of imagined. So one of the two big ideas in working identity is that our identities are at the heart of this, but identity is multiple, it's mutable, it's changing, and it really is what you enact by trying things out, by moving into new areas, by experimenting. You know, it's always a gap between who you think you are and then what you actually do when push comes to shove. And it's the same thing with career change. There's no point trying to excavate that true essence because there may not be actual job options that correspond to it. The real you is the one that's going to pick A over B or the one who's going to invest in C and minimize their time spent in D. That's that's kind of voting with your feet in terms of who you are. So the big message is that we are multiple possibilities and that the process of career change is one of experimenting with those possibilities until you find, you know, something that is a reasonably good fit. You act your way into it by playing with those options, generating those options. As you find things that don't fit, you look elsewhere, or you look more adjacent, or you get a little bit more creative. And, and it is that iterative Almost fast prototyping yourself kind of yeah. process. We Absolutely. Have Design thinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. two questions. When did you get pushback from, you know, all the career and personality types on this idea? And my other question is, you really strongly recommend for outside versus insight, this idea of going out and exploring rather than spending too much time navel gazing. Yeah. And my question is at midlife. Now, you know, post 50, let's say, isn't there a time and a place to digest the past and grow a degree of self-awareness before you launch a new journey? Because I, I find people haven't taken that time very often. Reflection is good. Okay. We're allowed to well, well, look, I, you know, this is when my students at London Business School arrive on day one in the Sloan program, which is a mid-career change program on day one, one of the big lessons and takeaways is that self-awareness is hard. There is a massive amount of research that shows how biased we are in terms of how we assess ourselves, how much other people pigeonhole us. And so knowing yourself is hard. And when you look at the psychology of it, the way you know yourself is you put something out there, you do something, and then you see what happens and you reflect on it. So that's where the reflective part comes in. You do something, you reflect on it. (laughs) Now, there are certainly times and places for reflecting on things you've done in the past and what you've learned from them. And, and that's great. But when you look at people struggling, that's not where their problem lies. Their problem lies in actually getting moving to do something with those learnings. And so what I have found is that you're better off getting started with maybe a less than ideal amount of self-awareness, but you're exploring and you're getting new inputs to kind of spark that thought process than waiting until I've got it all figured out in my head and now I can just go and do. And then it just so happens that there isn't an NED role available. (laughs) 
<laughs> that fits your plan. You see yeah. what I mean? Now, now this is assuming that you're not going to go and take a huge leap without much self-awareness. Most people don't, but sometimes, sometimes what happens is this is the danger of not being aware. Say a headhunter comes with something that looks like the perfect solution to your malaise, wherever you are right now. And you say, okay, fine. That'll change my context. Give me some, you know, a fresh environment, but you end up pretty much in the same kind of situation. That's not good. And that's often an error due to not enough reflection. Yeah. Most of the time, most of the time, it is people who get stuck. They want to change. They want to change. They don't know what to. They don't know what to. They don't do anything. They start blaming themselves. This came up in spades on the surveys we've been doing of the people who do webinars with me on this. They blame themselves. I don't have the right mindset. You know, I'm too rigid. I'm too this. And that reduces their self-confidence. And so they're less likely to take those steps. And so it gets into a cycle of worse than analysis paralysis. It, it's a kind of a confidence. Self-doubt. Yeah. Self-doubt. Yeah. Self-doubt is very rampant. And so much better to take a bit of a small wins kind of approach. How can I, I always talk about it, about flirting with your possible selves, take small steps, explore, yeah. don't commit, take on a project, do something on the side, you know, even read a book, take a course, give a yeah. course, whatever it is, play with it. Don't give up your day job. And then let's see. And if you don't have your day job because you've been fired or, you know, your organization doesn't exist anymore. Likewise, don't sit around waiting for the perfect thing to materialize. Start doing other things, even if they're not your next career, that will shore up your sense of identity, of being able to add value, of being a competent person, getting out in the world with other people. All of those things will help build up that identity that's gotten battered by the loss. And it will, it will get you to a point where you can reflect in a way that is less fear-based, in a way that is less reactive, less rigid, more expansive. Yeah, and based in some kind of reality. So that's that's a good link to the second major idea of the book, which is changing careers means changing ourselves. And so basically what you're saying is these flirts and experiments and travels are basically a journey towards your next incarnation. Yeah, yeah. because if identity is what you do and the company you keep and the story that you tell... As you change those things, you are changing yourself. Yeah, which is wonderful, right? I, I don't think that's where people start when they say, no. I need a new job or I need a new city. They're not on a journey to be changed. You know, that's, not, that's maybe not a career change. You know, I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't have the recipe for how to get a new job. That's not a career change problem. That's an implementation yeah. problem. Very, very different kind of thing. I look at people who want to move into something quite different from what they were doing. So are there typical steps or phases that over the years of this process that people can get to know, walk through yeah, Get a guide. <laughs> so I, you know, as you can imagine, I don't have a kind of a linear phase one, phase two, phase three, because people start from very different points. 
They all end up in that messy middle liminality where they have to muck around and experiment and have doubt. But they start from different points. Sometimes they start with an ending, a loss. They can't do this anymore. Sometimes they start with a new beginning because they have been either running a startup on their side time or you know, being on the board of something that now asks them to come into an operational role. So sometimes it starts with a new beginning. Sometimes it starts just a kind of like a simmering dissatisfaction that's building, 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 but the person's not doing anything. So it can start in lots of different ways. Endings are beginnings, beginnings are endings. But they all end up at some point, as soon as they start taking a more active approach, they all end up in this liminal, messy middle phase where um, you get very confused about who you are and what you want. And that confusion, in a way, keeps you from acting prematurely, <laughs> which is it's a bit of a interesting. Keeps you yeah, from, interesting. from yeah, acting yeah. prematurely. And it means that you give yourself enough time to play around. Now, it doesn't mean you're giving yourself enough time without making any money. You know, a lot of people manage this by you know, doing consulting on the thing they've always done to make ends meet. You know, there's lots of ways of doing this. I'm not assuming we have limitless ends and means for all of this, but it starts wherever you are. Yeah. I want to change. I've been booted out. I've, I've found something I like better. And then you end up asking the big questions and, and step by step, sometimes with more trial and error than other networking in different places, each time testing your hypothesis, maybe this and not that a little bit further, you start getting closer to either that new beginning that you move into or to having the guts to actually leave your day job. And, and which is why I say sometimes it's, it's a, it's an end, the endings and the beginnings are yeah. quite similar. Yeah. But I love that idea that um, this dark, messy middle is a guardrail I, of going too quickly. That's a, that's wonderful that it's actually we are miraculously designed to take the time we need because we can't do anything else. Do you yeah. find that people are, you know, because it is so messy and turbulent and emotional, I, I also find people think they're the only ones with this feeling and problem. Do you find that when you finally bring people together and they realize that? They're so relieved, you know, yeah. that that was always the the best feedback I got on working identities. <laughs> you know, people would say, oh, thank God. And, you know, I found out I'm, I'm not insane. Not only, oh, I'm not the only <laughs> one. There's a lot of relief from that. It's also in part because, you know, a lot of the stories that get told about all of this make it sound, they're so sanitized, you know, yeah. all of the... Yeah. All of the doubt and the uncertainty and the difficult moments get either forgotten or or kind of cleaned up out of the story. And so they think they're the only ones. And and then, you know, there's a lot of people feel a lot of stigma about losing their jobs. You know, we've gotten to a point where almost everybody's had some kind of experience like that, you know. Yeah. Once you get past that, sharing some of those experiences are very, very healthy. But people, even in their networking, they don't want it to be to even be suspected of, of, yeah. of having been in such a situation. And yeah, that gets in the way. Do you see a gender slant to the particular? Because I find women are pretty easy about coming together and sharing all their vulnerabilities yeah. and they sign yeah. up for all these change. And the men, I'm, I feel terrible because I really find... They don't have a space. There is no space. And they judge each other incredibly hard. Yeah. <laughs> I've got more men than women in my career transitions at 50 plus course. So that's good. Maybe it's because for the pilot, we targeted London Business School alumni and there's more 
male alumni of that vintage than than, than women. And uh, I think they trust in those kind of brands. They do. Right? If we're gonna if we're gonna get them, I think that's the perfect gateway. They do. But it's true that women are more open, especially with each other, with other yeah. women about what they're going through. And and that helps process because it's if it's all about difficult emotions and you're able to talk about them and helps process them and do something about them. I also find that, you know, I haven't studied this systematically, how men versus women change careers. But over time, I have observed that women tend to be a little bit more proactive in thinking about what is it that I want for this next phase? You know, maybe maybe the experience of encountering all these glass ceilings makes makes yeah. us think, you know, better be proactive here <laughs> who knows who knows what's going to happen but i see i see a lot more of that yeah um, and they've had to go in and out usually it's been a bumpier ride or something i think the yeah. men have an experience of slightly more linear where they didn't have to yeah. kind of question Plus, you know also there's the kind of the social expectation that they be the breadwinner and the provider and that they have a high powered job and you know yeah. uh, that's yeah. a yeah it's a tough bird one area yeah so career change is becoming a huge aspect of this whole longevity conversation governments want people to work longer we're trying to push retirement ages back get people to stay engaged right into their 60s maybe even 70s do you think this is going to happen is this for any everyone are, are we going to enter deeply divisive unequal times so, I mean, it's easy for those like us who love to work. And what about those who can't afford the alternative? The alternative being what? Uh, who would love to keep working, but can't for health reasons, can't because they're not employable, can't because they don't have skills. I mean, it's an inequality yeah. issue in society, yeah. this issue of being able to work forever. Yeah, well, let's just remember, not everybody wants to work forever. There's a lot of people including friends of mine, very much looking forward to their retirement. They've got plenty of interests and if they can afford it, they'll, they'll do it. So I, I think, I think that's one thing. I'm always hesitant to kind of look into the crystal ball of the future because we always get it wrong. But, you know, I will bet that this new round of AI is going to kind of change things up quite a bit and that more and more of us will be facing the need to to change into something else. One of the things that I've been thinking about recently is the two places that you and I are most familiar with, UK and France, have national health services, whereas in the US, where I'm from, you need a job to have your health care and your pension yeah. and, you know, everything else. I've talked to a lot of people who would love to go plural, have a portfolio career. The usual strategy that people will have here, let me just, you know, do some consulting on what I know how to do really well, but is boring. I don't want to do. And then that'll give me some time to yeah. take courses or, you know, that kind of thing is, is a fantastic way to transition, but people don't do it. If they don't have that kind of healthcare, yeah, yeah. If they don't have healthcare, yeah. or if they, you know, or if they don't have, um, you know, a partner who can provide that. So, so I think that that's going to be one of the one of the big issues because I don't think companies are going to solve it. I think companies are on track to continue streamlining and offloading, you know, managing your career to yourself. They're not so worried about that. 
I think jobs are going to get scarcer and they're not going to have trouble hiring people. I mean, I, I, I just don't, I don't necessarily see it happening in companies. Now, you know, they try different things and, uh, you know, I have to say, I tend to study pretty, you know, people who have a lot of resources for career change, you know, people who have a lot of education, who've done lots of things. So it doesn't always, doesn't always generalize, although the process is pretty much the same. And so companies try, you know, I'm, I remember I, I worked a good bit with Unilever and Shell when they were experimenting with the system where people can bid for projects yeah. as a way of getting skills and things that they don't have and as a way of exploring areas. And so there'll be more and more of those things because companies are wanting to be flexible. But I just don't think that's a, a solution for enough people. And in fact, the problem is, if you think about the universe of people wanting to make these changes, they want to leave those companies. They don't want their, (laughs) they don't want another little role. They just want to leave them. They are fed up with the toxic environments, with the politics, with the bureaucracy, with the endless process. They're not happy with those things. And so that's, I don't think that that's where the help is going to come from. You don't think that some of them are are just you know, they just don't want to keep going on the 24-7 inflexible senior. I mean, this whole idea of flexing careers at the end, you don't think it has legs, especially as the younger demographic kind of shrinks a bit and companies are going to become maybe more interested in retaining their 50 plusers? To be honest, because I haven't really studied that. I haven't looked at it close up. And so I can't comment in any intelligent way. It could well be. It could well be. We know lots of occupations in which flexing in law, in medicine, so many occupations in which that has worked out wonderfully. And I just haven't studied that in the business corporate context, but it may well be. It may may well be. We'll see. We'll We'll do another one when you do. So you've innovated in one organization by starting a 50 plus alumni program at LBS. Can you share? It's just started in November. So you're just a few months in. Anything you want to share? What have you learned? Any takeaways? And what what, what are you doing in it? Yeah, yeah. This is a pilot. And so we decided to open the pilot only to our alumni, but we've already got a waiting list and we're not going to limit it to alumni going forward. We just have to figure out what the formats are going to be. It's an online program and it's got eight sessions over the course of four months. It's got two sessions by me at the beginning and at the end on the frameworks and the ideas and also informed by a survey from the participants about what issues they're working on and they want to work on. And then in between, they have six coaching sessions in small groups with coaches working on the different ideas in working identity, you know, your list of possible selves and expanding your network and telling your story. And so there, there are different small groups for each of the topic. And the idea is to kind of move people along because they have to do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're still, we're just getting input. We're midway. And so I, I can't come to big conclusions, but people really do value the ability to share their experiences in groups that feel safe and small enough that you can kind of get quite personal, that that they value a lot. They'd like to have more of it than we have provided so far. So we'll have to figure out how to expand that aspect in the next iteration. But we haven't formally debriefed the feedback from this version. We're going to do it. We're going to do it at the end 
And so stay posted, I would say. And Eddie, I know you've done some research on evolving priorities for people in this age group compared to their Q2 selves. What is it that they absolutely want more of come Q3? More time for themselves, more flexibility. You know, they yeah. they still want challenging work, interesting work. Everybody wants, it, no matter what the age, everybody wants meaningful work. Yeah. But younger, you care more about the CV building kind of stuff. And older, you care more about having time for other aspects of your life and having that kind of autonomy. Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> Can't we all? We're, we've got that. We're pretty archetypal. You are writing another book or you're preparing to write another book. Can you tantalize us with just a little bit? I know you're not well, allowed am, to say too much. but Now uh, I can say I am writing. You know, <laughs> usually I'm writing a book actually means I'm thinking about the possibility of possibly one day putting pen to paper. <laughs> but uh, now I can say I am writing, although slowly because I'm teaching my students right now. It is about career transitions at 50 plus. It's not going to be called that. You know, titles are always a bear and they come out last. Yes, (laughs) But it is about making these transitions later in our careers. How do we do it? What's the landscape? What are the challenges? I'm following people over time again, seeing what's happening and trying to understand the landscape in a way that I can provide some good how-tos that are evidence-based, that help people understand what's going on using some of the fundamental ideas in psychology about why we get paralyzed, for example, or how do you deal with fear or, you know, what does it take to actually be resilient in these kinds of situations? Yeah, I'm having a great, great time with it, hoping, uh, hoping to carve out a bigger chunk of time to get it done. I can't wait to read it. So we, we will we will have another one of these when it's out. One one last word. Any advice yeah. for all the individuals listening who might have slightly restless toes or fingers as they just begin to think, well, maybe it's time for me to listen to all this transition stuff. What should they do? Where should they go? So I have found, and this is not my own research, but I've appropriated, sometimes the easiest way to get started is to reactivate your dormant network. So, you know, if you're if you're kind of in your job, just starting to feel restless, think about three, four, five people that you have enjoyed in the past and you haven't crossed them for, say, three years or so because they went to work somewhere else or you did. You've lost track. Write to them and say, hey, I'm in a, you know, I'm working on this project or I'm in the process of thinking about whatever. I'd love to reconnect, get your thoughts. And it's like a breath of fresh air because we get so trapped in that in me, we're busy and then we've got our lives at home. And so you get trapped in that confluence of things that defines your current job. And it's really hard to get the excitement or to, you know, just expand your mind a little bit. So that's that's the best way to get started. And I think the second best way, if you want to have a little bit more courage and you need a, just a little bit more time, do something, do something, take a class, take a class for how to become a non-executive director or volunteer for something, something that kind of gets you 
out of your day in and day out job, but still has you using your professional competencies and skills or expanding them and gets you in touch with other people who may well also be in similar straits. That also, you know, I mean, obviously, if you know what you want to explore in more detail, go do that. But if you don't even know where to start, you're dormantized and do something. Herminia Ibarra, thank you so much for being with us. Folks, you've heard her get moving. Get (laughs) moving. (laughs) Thank you, Aviva. It's always fun to talk with you. Until next time. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.